Hello and welcome to the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Robin Hicks, Deputy Editor of Eco Business, Asia's leading sustainability publication. On today's podcast, I'm joined by wildlife ecologist and conservation planner Tony Sebastian. Over a 30-year career working in 17 different countries in Asia and the Middle East, Sebastian's work has ranged from managing Siberian crane habitat to converting farmlands to wetland habitat in northeastern China. Tony's current job is working with a team of ecologists to restore the biodiverse Kampar Peninsula as an advisor for Restauracy Ecosystem Riau, or translated into English, the Riau Ecosystem Restoration Project. Kampar Peninsula is an area of 150,000 hectares of degraded peatland forest in Indonesia's Riau province, located in concessions belonging to Pulp and Paper Company, Asia-Pacific Resources International Limited, or April. Years of selective logging have degraded the Kampar forests. Its fragile ecosystem is threatened by the draining of peatland for commercial agriculture and fires started to clear the land. Despite widespread disturbances to the area, the peninsula retains high carbon stocks and conservation value and is home to endangered species such as the Sumatran tiger, flat-headed cat and sun bear. So Tony, thanks for joining us. Um, first of all, tell us a bit about your work on the RER project in Riau um, and the ambitious plan to restore and manage 150,000 hectares of forest in Indonesia. Um, what's the biggest challenge involved in doing that? Uh, thanks, Robin. Uh, the RER program is indeed a, a extremely challenging uh, but hugely exciting uh, initiative. I'm blessed. I'm, I'm so thankful to have been, uh, I don't know, appointed or selected to to uh, be a technical advisor to this project. The uh, the reason it is such an interesting project in itself is uh, a combination of several things. The first being where it is. The part of the world it is makes it you know, uh, gives it a, a, a very spe- special significance in the world, and that is Sumatra, tropical Asia, and Sundaland. The second thing is what it is, and what it is is that it is one of the most amazing wetlands in the world. Um, you know, wetlands have all kinds of forms and shapes and things in the world, but this one is a peatland, and being peatland. It has its own set of uh, characteristics, it has its own nature, and it has its own set of challenges. And the world today has uh, turned many of these important wetlands into very, very critical areas of concern. And peatlands are one of the most uh, endangered of the wetlands. So where it is and what it is, combine the two, uh, you come to the third one, which is really why I'm involved in this project, and it's that is its size. It is just so big. And in this world today, when we are dealing with little things, faced with enormous problems, surrounded by little islands in a vast landscape of modified environments, big wetlands are such a rarity. 
So the opportunity to restore such a large size wetland, a real landscape environment, is any ecologist's dream. And I am living my dream right now. Um, the size of the project is interesting, as you mentioned, um, 150,000 hectares of forest, about roughly twice the size area of Singapore. Um, part of the land has been degraded. Can felled or burn forest ever grow back to its former glory? Well, there are two ways of looking at that and two ways of addressing that question. The first is, um, has anything ever been perfectly as it is for 300 million years. No, it never has. The, 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 the term we often hear, 300 million year old rainforest. Honestly, that's rubbish. There is no such thing as a 300 million year old rainforest. Every environment on this planet has evolved and will continue to evolve. So putting that into context, the second bit is when you destroy or convert a particular forest in any part of the world, and then you say, I'm going to restore it. What you actually mean is you're going to restore it to its ecological functioning, right? This is not like my dad's old 1967 Volkswagen, which I can buy every single screw and put it back and make it exactly the way it was. Nature is not like that. So in restoration, any restoration project, what you do is you are guided by a set of objectives that you put in place. You say, this is what I want it to be. So the short answer, or rather the long answer to your question is no, you can never restore uh, any natural environment to back exactly the way it was before. And what are the sort of things you need to think about the first things you need to think about when restoring a forest? Oh, that's easy. You must first know what it is. You must understand it comprehensively. If you do not, then you do not have the necessary information to make the right decisions. If you don't know what animals and what plants and what birds and what, what people are using it and everything to, you need to know about a particular forest, you cannot set objectives. Do you want uh, the forest to supply you water? That's an ecological function. Do you want it to be a great habitat for large animals so tourists can come and visit it and you, have, you then turn it into a tourism destination? Then that becomes your objective. You first need to understand it. And the objective for RER project? Is to set the conditions back to what it was before hydrologically. Hydrologically. It is a wetland. No water, no wetland. The biggest problem throughout that the Riau province and the, the eastern side of Sumatra is these vast wetlands have been drained. They've been drained for many reasons. Not all of them are plantations. You know, there have been many, many reasons to drain, including access. So the first and primary objective for this is to preserve its, or to, to reinstate its hydrology into as close a state as possible to its past. That is the only way that you can actually think about restoring a wetland. And how long will it take to restore um, a wetland forest? And how much does it cost? 
How long? Ooh. Depends on your objective, right? If you had a very short-term objective, you can probably achieve that. Um, but if you're talking about this, uh, uh, an area like Kampa, which I mean, you, you mentioned it was twice the size of Singapore, but that's our restoration site. Our restoration site sits within a larger forest area of 10 times the size of Singapore. So the scale is enormous, right? Um, what is the cost? I Honestly, I could not say. What we could do is set our objectives and then work out the costing and see over what time frame will you need to uh, implement and, and then you will probably have an idea of what it will cost. And obviously, what it will cost will also influence what objectives you set and what methodologies you use, what activities you start in place. Like what we're doing in RER right now, we, set, we put in a set of pilots. So we're testing this methodology in this part, we're testing this methodology in the other part, doing a river, doing a plant species and all that. And the results of these pilot tests will then enable us to come up with a more comprehensive restoration plan. Hopefully that will be able to be costed. And just roughly, I mean, roughly it's running into the millions, I would imagine, every year to, yeah. Absolutely, in, in, in the millions. And not just, uh, the cost is not just financial cost. It is also uh, temporal cost, right? And that, uh, when you, you want to commit to a restoration project for 60 years, that is a huge cost. It's a cost in human resource, it's a cost in terms of spatial planning, it's a cost in terms of resources that a company applies to the project. And it's the cost of some careers that get developed along the way. Many young people are coming on board and, and they are in it for the long term. We'll turn them into wetland ex experts in the future. Um, restoring a forest is one thing. Keeping it restored and intact is another. What are sort of threats um, facing the RER project and how are you managing those threats? Okay, keeping, keeping a forest uh, intact uh, yeah, let me let me uh, rephrase that. I think it's about how do we manage a forest, all right? If we're going to restore a forest, obviously we're putting investment into it. It is our in our interest to protect it or manage it in the best possible manner. That investment we we put inside there is is almost a capital cost, right? It adds value to the forest we restore. So the key point as an ecologist. Uh, any ecologist will tell you this, the challenges towards managing forests today all relate to its value. If the forest has no value in the eyes of the custodians, it doesn't get managed. That's an interesting perspective. Um, it touches on a study that I wanted to, to put to you by the National University of Singapore. It was a study that showed a forest is more likely to stay intact if it is managed by a large agribusiness firm rather than managed by the government of Indonesia. I'm, I'm not, not convinced that that would be a case uh, across the world. But I would say, back to my original point, if a company had a large landscape forest and its business model, its reputation, and its credibility is linked to the existence of that forest, oh boy, will they protect that forest and they will manage it much better than an under-resourced government agency. 
because they have the ability. And a business is always set towards protecting its assets. I'd like to ask you about the um, your hope for Indonesia specifically. You're working in Indonesia. Um, Indonesia is known to have one of the highest rates of deforestation in the world. Um, how hopeful are you that Indonesia's remaining forests can remain intact? What my hope is for not just the country of, of Indonesia, but my own country, Malaysia, and several other countries, Laos, Vietnam, Burma, or Myanmar, uh, is that the land use planning gets a big, big wake-up call. A huge wake-up call is required. I don't know what the, the incentives are to, to get that, that wake-up call up into the developing world, but we are, that's my hope that large landscapes can be locked down and put aside now. Because while I, I wouldn't take away anything from the effort to, to manage small islands in a, modified, in a sea of modification, I mean, they have their own intrinsic values and, and I, I salute everyone who's doing that. Uh, but we really need to go for the large impact areas. And this is why I'm working with RER. It is a large impact area. In the world of, of preserving forests and preserving everything that belongs to forests and is a part of forests, it is not equal. Some are more equal than others. And a large landscape is always more valuable than a small island. And I don't mean an island surrounded by sea. And deforestation um, and the value of forests has been seen as the, the single biggest contributor to climate change, even bigger than the energy sector. Um, our final question for you is your vision for the future of forests, um, particularly in Indonesia, if you'd like, but also perhaps globally about how you see forests being preserved in the future and what it will take. Mm, my vision, uh, I would like to think my vision will actually be a sustainable development goal by all by itself. <laughs> and that is, there is a big, big change in the man on the street. Because I honestly believe that's where it starts. A lot of things like governance or politics, so uh, all the other things, uh, features that are at play in our world today, uh, all of these actually revolve around the man on the street. You, you may think that's a rhetorical question, uh, statement, but actually it's not. I, I truly believe that every single one, the young people of this world, um, when they start telling people that I want forest, I don't just want the wood that comes from the forest, I don't just want the wonderful TV documentaries that come from the forest, but I actually want the forest. And I want to be able to walk through some of those giant trees and get my feet wet and be a little scared that a scorpion would bite my foot. And when these sort of values get really entrenched in human beings, then and only then things will change. That's a great place to leave it. Tony, thanks very much for joining us on the Eco Business Podcast. And thanks for listening. Thank you.
EcoBusiness is the leading media organization on responsible business, clean tech, and sustainable development, serving the Asia Pacific community. This episode is part of the Let's Write the Future podcast series supported by ABB. Join the conversation by visiting us at eco-business.com and subscribe to our newsletter. It brings you interesting news and events from around the region. Thank you for listening and watch out for our next podcast.